We're in Luke chapter 3. And remember the chapter itself began looking at John's ministry as it began. And then, after those first six verses of an introduction to that, we saw John's message of repentance in verses 7 through 14 of Luke 3. And now today, we're going to look at verses 15 to 20. And it's almost uh, surprising, after we look at that, we're actually going to wrap up the ministry of John here in the book of Luke. And uh, Lord willing, we'll get, get into that next week. Let me read to you Luke 3, verses 15 to 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And we'll stop there for now. If you remember... Last week, we looked at the admonition that John gave to those people who came to him looking for this baptism without signs of repentance. One man had extra tunics, didn't give to anybody. Tax collectors were pocketing what they took, going above and beyond what Rome required. And then we had the example of soldiers who were basically uh, shaking people down to get things from them. So what John basically has said, you don't have fruits marking your repentance. You want to look at those, you can look in Galatians 5, I guess it is, fruits of the Spirit. But what he's generally saying here is, is just things, everyday things, things, for instance, that we teach our children as we rear them, to be generous, to be kind, to don't steal from others. And certainly don't be a bully going around shaking people down for their lunch money or something. We want to be those who demonstrate fruits of repentance. And John had been talking about this. Now, what, what's going on here? What's his preaching all about? Well, what it's all about is he's being effective. Look what it says in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, what is it they're expecting? Anybody? Pardon? Yes. The Messiah. The Messiah. And John's preaching had heightened that expectation. They were looking now. They were thinking, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? This is what Israel has been looking for for hundreds of years. And now they have an inclination that that's what's going to be taking place here. 
<laughs> it's wonderful to see this effective ministry, but you know, people don't always see. Not everybody saw. Listen to what we read in Isaiah, particularly about the people of Israel. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. The prophets proclaiming to Israel, don't you see? And of course they didn't. So here in John's ministry, it's like there's a breakthrough and it's a wonderful thing. People are considering, is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've learned about from the Old Testament scriptures? Has he come? It's a breakthrough. You know, as you're witnessing, or even if you're <laughs> uh, someone like myself teaching or the ministers who are preaching, wow, this is great. Somebody in the audience has had a breakthrough. <laughs> they understand what's being said. They see the truth of what we're teaching or preaching. What a wonderful thing this is, a breakthrough. They're considering here. And as we witness to people, isn't this what we want? Don't we court their inquiry? What must I do to be saved? You don't hear that very often. In my lifetime, I think I've heard that once. And boy, <laughs> I sat down the phone and said, okay, I'll be over in about 30 minutes. I've uh, been had a friendship ministry, if you will, with a man uh, who used to work where I used to work and he'd been retired and we developed this friendship over several years and he got to the place where he wanted to know what to do to be saved. I had the privilege of driving over to his house. Boom, <laughs> you don't get that very often. John is getting that by the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Are you the Messiah? They want to know. This is good. People are thinking, and it wouldn't be long before the Messiah would come and reveal himself. You remember him, excuse me, him, Jesus, talking to Zacchaeus later in the book of Luke in the 19th chapter. He said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Christ came particularly to the Jews at first to preach to them this good news. And he says this to this uh, Pharisee and not a novice Pharisee, one who had been around a while. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Many such parables like that in the book of Luke that we're gonna see and consider. And of course, the blessed end of that story that we'll get to later is that Zacchaeus was converted. He turned around. And what did you see in the life of Zacchaeus? Repentance. We saw repentance and he paid back four times over what he had taken wrongly. He demonstrated the fruits that John is preaching about here. It's interesting, John didn't come with a lot of pomp, there was not a lot of show or grandeur. He didn't have any external accoutrement, anything like that. He came out of the backwoods, dressed in rough clothing, eating a very simple diet, but he came forth in power. He was a holy prophet and preaches with great power. One thing, it's one thing to preach. It's altogether another to preach with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Have you ever been to a worship service like that? And you leave, you're walking on cloud nine. The spirit has really driven home the truth of the word. Aren't those exciting times? It's great. And when somebody says to you, man, uh, where does your preacher get all that? Heard that from a grandchild one time. Where does he get all that? What a blessing. He was listening. He was comprehending, even though he didn't completely understand. Well, let me tell you, Mark, here's where he got all that. What a blessing. Remember, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. Remember the connection between his mother, Elizabeth, and the mother of the Messiah, Mary. And the baby leapt in the womb. John, and now 30 years down the road, he had training in the desert and he's preaching and he's been walking with the Lord, no doubt. No wonder he preaches with power. No wonder he's effective. And now <laughs> we see the fruits of that. Well, secondly, we see that this faithful minister exalts the one he came to preach about. Verses 16 and 17. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier, mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, gather the wheat, burn the chaff. He's laying it on the line. You know, this isn't a feel-good gospel here, is it? This is telling it like it is. And isn't this what the world needs to hear? Isn't it what we need to hear? We need to be reminded. We haven't come here to feel good. We've come to learn the truth about our Savior, our God. A faithful minister proclaims this. We need to pray that our ministers would ever be faithful. Thank God they do proclaim these truths. They were doing this, and John was doing this. They're looking for a Messiah. Now at this point, I don't believe they would have known that his name was Jesus. Now John should have known that from his mother's relationship with Mary, but perhaps they didn't. They were looking for someone. They didn't know his name was Jesus. This John fits the bill, doesn't he? This is everything we heard about the Messiah. We can tell by his preaching, his faithful effective preaching. Well, it was, of course, the Holy Spirit revealing this. He is at work in all of this, and we'll see that in depth as we go on here. Jesus taught his disciples in the book of John, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is what John was doing. He will glorify me. Well, we're going to see here to what depths he'll go to do that. You see here, we have an idea of the progression of this thing called salvation. In our story here in Luke, it starts with John, which is before Jesus Christ. And all that took place in his prophetic life leading up to what we're about to see. We've already seen the birth of Christ. Now we're going to see his ministry. And then that's plugged in. But we go beyond that. And the Holy Spirit 
we see as part of this, and we see that in our passage here today, we see this continuing progression. The word comes, the Savior saves, the Holy Spirit is at work applying all that and making changes. In the Greek, what is said here is John emphatically, the word emphatically denies he is, he is the Messiah with great humility, great humility. He disallows any efforts they go to to make him the Messiah. He says to them right off, I baptize you with water. He who is mightier than I is coming. And he says how lowly he considers himself in light of that. He doesn't deny that the Messiah is coming and he's coming very soon. But he argues here, I'm, I got a message for you. Okay, that's right. I'm glad you hear it. But there's one greater than I am who's coming, Jesus Christ. You know, <laughs> all the truths that we're handling here uh, are nothing compared to the greater one in his person. Uh, one of the things we ought to do in our life is not only try to learn the word of God, study this, be enriched, but we ought to develop the relationship with the one who wrote this epistle to us. What are we learning relationally with this one? John is telling them more about the Messiah so they might be able to enter into this fellowship and really get on point. I'm glad you see this, but wait, it's not me you want. The Messiah is the one you want. You know, John did all he could do. He could baptize with water. He could do this, but that was all he could do. Although he's filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of ministry, and you see the Holy Spirit power in his message, he did not have the Spirit with him as regards salvation. Only the Messiah could bring that salvation. I don't know if the Jews of that day understood that or not, but John is careful to talk about that. His message was to repent. Jesus' message is to believe in me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He teaches that in the Gospel of John. So he says, and he describes this in great detail, that is John, as if to further emphasize how less he is. He says he is mightier than I. Well, John must have done great things, I suppose. Maybe the people saw that. They see the number of other people coming to be baptized, repenting. But John, in effect, says, you ain't seen nothing yet. This one coming is much mightier than I am. I'm just telling you about it. I'm trying to get you ready. He also says he is much worthier than I am. Look how he describes himself. This is a man with a great ministry, a great ministry, John. He says, I am not worthy to loose the strap of his sandal. In the, in the setting of this time, students would go and basically live with their teachers. They would get their instruction from them. In return, they would serve their teachers. They would go get food or prepare it for them, any other errands they had to run. Today, we would send them to the dry cleaners. Here, go pick up my suit, will you? You know, all kinds of things. But they would earn their keep. 
to get instruction from their teachers. But <laughs> there was one thing they did not have to do. Guess what it was? They didn't have to take off the teacher's sandals. Isn't that nice? <laughs> if you had stinky feet, you would say, don't worry about it, somebody else will get it, you know? They didn't have to do that. But John says he is not even worthy to do that. Friends, this isn't trumped up humility. Uh, this is real humility. I am not even worthy to wash your feet. Uh, this hopefully makes you go toward uh, the gospel and the story of the Last Supper and before that, Jesus washing their feet. Uh, maybe you could think about that this week in addition to this. He, John, was not even worthy to do that. And the truth is, we aren't either, are we? We're not worthy to even do something like that for Jesus. Anything we do for him is of grace. John says, in effect, I am lower than the lowest servant. Do you ever feel like that when you run up on a homeless person? Sometimes I have a hard time dealing with them because I don't have enough wisdom. There's only one in the years I've lived here in Greenville that I've made a connection with. And it's difficult. I don't, I'm not wise enough to do that. And I'm sure I'm not humble enough to think. I've never consciously took this problem on. I'm not humble enough to think I'm better or I'm worse than that homeless person. John's doing that. Can you imagine? <laughs> this is, and he's proclaiming to them not only that, those two things about Jesus, he's also proclaiming to them a Messiah who is greater in every way than John is. He's not only a better preacher, friends, he is better in every way than I am. And I think that can be elaborated in a great many ways from the Old Testament. The prophets knew that. John, it was said, was greater than all the Old Testament prophets. We can read that in 1 Peter. Greater than Jesus was. He's greater in his power in baptism. And that's what he especially spells out here. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is this baptism that Jesus is going to have? You remember we had covenant baptism, was it last week? Or the week before, children? Dr. Phillips said, this was the Old Testament, I'd be pouring blood on here. But the best that our ordained and in good standing pastor can do is pour water on that child. And that's a significant thing. Don't we enjoy and aren't we elated to see this thing take place called covenant baptism? But that's all he can do. What is the Messiah going to do? He's going to baptize with the spirit and with fire. What's that all about? What's that all about? So you see, John has just been baptizing for repentance. Jesus is going to be baptizing beyond that. He's bringing the Holy Spirit and fire. What does fire signify in the scriptures? Well, oftentimes it speaks of judgment. It also speaks of 
purification too. There are a number of instances where this takes place. You see this in the book of Acts, where fire is together with the Holy Spirit. It certainly speaks of purification. You can read in other scriptures about how this takes place. But John is pointing to the one who is able to save, to purify, to change us. Some interpreters say this definitely speaks to judgment because of the verses that follow, and we'll get into that. But it was said of John in Matthew 11, listen to this. This is incredible if you really think about it. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Whose words are those in Matthew 11? Yes, what a commendation. And yet, he's nowhere near the one who said that, Jesus Christ. You know, wouldn't you want, if you have a plaque put up here in second prayers like some older saints have, wouldn't you like your plaque to say, among those born of women, there is no one greater than Doug McDaniel or Joel Barnett or Bill Cross? Sure you would. Christ says that about John. But yet John turns right around and says, I am not even worthy to take someone's sandals off. What humility. What a message he has. He is not this Messiah, and he's describing here this Messiah and how he will come and preach. Jesus comes, and he does more than the water, the pouring. He gives the Holy Spirit. I hope you know what that's like. I hope you realize that you have that. But he also says he can and will judge. Fires there with that in this picture. They should know this, these Jews. Why do I say that? Let me go back to the book of Ezekiel. Read a couple passages. Old Testament prophet. The Jews had this in their hands 400 years before the coming of Jesus. And we read in the book of Ezekiel in the 36th chapter and the 27th verse. I know I'm lifting this out, but it's still applicable. I will put my spirit, it's capitalized, Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is Ezekiel. Hundreds of years before this proclaiming of the Messiah. Well, again, in the 37th chapter, just across the page in your open book, the 14th verse, we read, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. The Jews had heard this message. They should have been ready for this. Sadly, a lot of them weren't. In the New Testament, you see this mentioned, this fire especially. We have a picture of the Spirit, that's in the Old Testament. We're beginning to see it unfurled for us in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, you're also gonna have direct allusions to fire or direct examples of fire. In Matthew 7, you read, he puts fire to the tree to burn it down. Weeds are burned up 
in Matthew 13. Again, we're looking in judgment. Later in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to read in chapter 9 about calling fire from heaven. And then uh, you read in John 15, of course, that great story of uh, pruning the tree. What do you do with those things you trim off? You burn them up. This is the God who's coming. This is the Messiah. John says, look at him. He is coming with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. What power that is. He's also coming with fire. Won't you listen? Jesus further shows his superior superiority in a number of ways, and I'll go over these quickly. First of all, where is he from? Where is Christ from? I don't mean Nazareth. <laughs> He's from heaven. He condescended to be born of a woman in Nazareth, but he is from heaven. He's from a greater place. Beyond that, we'll read later in the, in the Gospel of John that he's omniscient. You remember different instances of this. I guess it was, the who was it, the Samaritan woman? After she meets with Jesus, she goes back and said, you won't believe the things this guy's told me. <laughs> And you remember other times he tells people, oh, oh, no, no, that's not the only husband you've had. What about the umpteen others you had before this? And leaves people scratching about his knowledge. He's omniscient. Nathaniel had the same reaction when he met Christ, didn't he? Couldn't believe, surely this has got to be the son of God. Well, he also has all authority. God gives that to him, and we'll see that as we go through here in the book of Luke. All authority is given to him. What does that mean? That means that uh, ultimately Putin still has someone he has to answer to, and it's not the leaders of Ukraine. It also means that Joe Biden and everyone else who works in Washington has a person they're responsible to beyond the people who have elected them, which they often forget. Someone who has all authority, our God. And that is demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Well, beyond that, we learn, well, we will especially, that he alone is the Savior. Messiah's coming. He is the one you're looking for. In Acts, we read, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. No other name. It is the name of Jesus. All of that is embodied in this person called Jesus Christ. Many of those references I just gave you came from John's gospel in chapter five. This one who's coming, John is saying, is more worthy than I am. He is holier he is a higher being, and he has a baptism that I don't know much at all about. He's coming with the Spirit and fire. What does the Holy Spirit do? Think about that, Christian. We don't see, we don't hear a lot of messages about the Holy Spirit per se as a person. What did he do? What's your testimony? How did you become a Christian? What's the first thing that happened? Pardon? Absolutely. He regenerates us. 
He brings conviction of sin through the preached word or some other means of the word of God coming into your life. He does that. What else does he do? (coughs) I think I prayed this one this morning. He sanctifies us. He works sanctification in us. We have the common means of grace, the word of God, prayer, and the sacraments, but we trust the Holy Spirit to center those things on us and to work through them to sanctify us, make us become like the Lord Jesus Christ. He adopts us. We're adopted as children. You can read about that in the book of of Romans. He seals us to the day of our going back to be with the Lord. And he equips us. Wow. I I would be a, anybody who teaches or, or does anything for the Lord would be a fool if we didn't pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be with us. You know, you hear a lot of that on Thursday night when the gentlemen from our congregation go downtown to Greenville to witness. They pray for the Spirit to be with them and even to prepare people ahead of time to be the one that they give the word to. Well, he does all those things, but also fire comes here. Judgment is spoken of. Why do I say that? Because listen how he explains it in verse 17. He has, as it were, a winnowing fork. During the harvest season of this time and age, wheat, for instance, had to be gone through with a winnowing fork. They would take it up to a higher level and a flat area and have an open on different sides of whatever their structure was to protect it, to have the wind come through. They would throw the, the harvest up into the air and the wind would blow away the chaff and the wheat would be left. And they used what was called a winnowing fork. And what course is that picture of? It's a picture of the last day when our God will do this. Burn up the chaff and only the real, real crop, only the truly saved will be left. Plus Jesus discerns everything. And and John knows all this. You know, beyond the things we've shown in scripture here briefly, he, Jesus, even knows our motivations, our secret sins, our thoughts. Doesn't that sober you? And doesn't that make you worship differently today, even? That's the God we're worshiping. He knows us and he knew us before we were created. Psalm 139 tells us that. Before we were knit together in our mother's womb, he knew us. No wonder John was humbled. (laughs) He wasn't just saying this from book knowledge. He had a connection in life with who this was. You know, only the son of God can do these things. As Dr. Phillips said last week, he could only pour water on them. But our savior can pour out the Holy Spirit. And this was a great thing, a very great thing. We'll see that in, at the end of his ministry, especially in the, in, in the cross-reference over to the Gospel of John. And we have, if you will, one last thing about this situation Jesus Christ's only comp, his, his commentary 
on this very truth. Let me take you to the book of Acts. There's about two places there. Right away in the first chapter, we read this. This is, uh, this is wonderful. Who's the book of Acts written by? Luke. Who did he write Luke to? Same guy he's writing Acts to. Chapter one, verse one. In the first book of Theophilus, I dealt with some things, but now I'm gonna tell you some other things. Jesus here, I wanna tell you about him. He says in verse five about him, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. A different baptism that Christ is explaining here. This is his own words on this, on this truth. He says something similar in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Similar thing back in the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. We read this in verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The truth of this is exemplified here in who it comes from. Christ is giving these words here about the Holy Spirit. Well, those are the parts of the second point I wanted to make about this ministry of John, that it was effective. And we saw what two things he dealt with there in verses 16 and 17. He was faithful. Now, last thing I want you to look at is, uh, <laughs> whoa, all of a sudden after this powerful message, what happens? John is stopped, okay? What a great ministry he has. And now in the providence of God, this ministry is stopped. Look at the last two verses here. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who he had reproved, puts him quiet, sends him to jail. What's going on here? First of all, I want you to know this is not chronological order. I believe the motive behind Luke bringing this up right here is to stop telling the story of John the Baptist. He's gonna shift gears and Lord willing, we'll see this next week. He's moving from the ministry of John to the ministry of the Messiah, the one that John has been proclaiming. And this is how he does it. I say that because you can find this other story in more detail about the death of John, for instance, in the, in gospel, in the gospel of Matthew. So this is not chronological, but Luke seems to wanna to finish this story so he can get on to the story of the Messiah. He wants the focus of the rest of his gospel to be on the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that's where we're gonna go, Lord willing. So we read about Herod the Tetrarch, who's he? We learned about him back in the beginning of the other chapters, two and one about this guy and uh, along with all the other people who were an integral part of the history of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. We learned that he was not Herod the Great, but a son of Herod. It's been said that he occasionally liked to listen to John and his preaching, except when John stepped on his toes. 
You ever left a Sunday service like that? <laughs> I think he was talking about me today. You know, I hurt. Herod was okay as long as it was soothing, as long as his conscience wasn't pricked. But when it was, he took action against the man of God. And uh, Luke wraps this up for us. We see then the real Herod. John spoke out about his sin and the indication is from the other gospels that he didn't do this just once. Several times he took the time to do this. How many people do this today? If you listen to preachers on the television, how many of them do this? Point out the sins, for instance, of our nation, of, of certain denominations or other groups Maybe the best thing wouldn't be to step on somebody's toes individually on a broadcast. But where's the proclamation about sin per se? Even widely, you don't see it on most of the media. John spoke boldly about the sin of this leader, Herod. And he paid for it, if you will. He was a fearless preacher. He got personal. He confronted Herod about his sin. What was his sin here? Do you understand what it was? Adultery. Adultery? What else? Well, that fomented a couple other things. Who did he take up with? His brother. His brother. So basically, you might call it incest. Well, what necessity, what did he have to do before he took up with her? He had to get rid of the wife that he had. So you have this unlawful divorce and the Mosaic law, it was known by these people at this time. It wasn't hidden somewhere that the Jews were still practicing this. <clears throat> so all of these things, we probably had incest, we had divorce without call, cause, we have a violation of the Mosaic law. Man, he might as well have taken an arrow and shot it right at Herod the Tetrarch. And all of those things are true. What happens here at the end of this chapter of Luke? Well, what we're going to see, if you will, is that John is not only going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, he's also going to be the earliest, if not the first, martyr for his faith. We're going to see that. And this is uh, a history that you ought to make yourselves acquainted with, not just John. If you want to soberly reflect on where you live and what time you live, you ought to think about what it's going to cost you to continue to live as a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't want to hoodwink you and tell you the easy believism way that everything will be all right. It won't necessarily. <clears throat> you know, tradition has it that all of the apostles except John were martyred. Where was John? He was sent in exile to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. The only clear scriptural indication we have of what I just said is the death of James, the brother of John, that's recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 12. We have early church fathers who died for their faith or were exiled. A man named Ignatius in early second century Rome was uh, exiled. Polycarp in mid-2nd century Smyrna. 
Listen to this. He refused to announce Christ. This is an 86-year-old man who is being harassed and, and being punished for his belief. He said this to those in charge. Eighty and six years have I served him. He's talking about Jesus. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Threatened to be burned? He said this. You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little while it is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved from the ungodly. But why tarry you? Bring forth what you will. This is the boldness that John is exemplifying here when he preaches the truth to the man politically who is the leader in the area where he lives. Give you a couple others before we close. You remember ever hearing the name John Chrysostom? Fourth century, lived in Constantinople. He was a great preacher. He was called Golden Mouth. Uh, I don't know that anybody will describe me that way unless I have some sweet candy in my mouth. He was exiled twice. And the second time that he was moved, he died because it was very uh, arduous. Uh, the historian Justo Gonzalez writes this as he was on his second exile. When he perceived that death was near, he asked to be taken to a small church by the roadside. There he took communion, bid farewell to those around him, and preached his briefest but most eloquent sermon. He said this, In all things, glory to God. Amen. Can you and I do that? That's what John was doing. Listen, Herod, this is what the word of God says. Well, there are forerunners of the Reformation you may have heard about. John Wycliffe, who was exiled from his country. Jan Hus, a man who was uh, from Czechoslovakia, burned at the stake for his faith. And you know the story of Hugh Latimer and his uh, partner and brother in faith, Nicholas Ridley, about to be burned at the stake. And Latimer says to Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Going to be burned for his faith. This is what John is exhibiting here. And this probably the very first martyr of the faith. I'm not sure of that. I haven't studied it all out. But this is the calling. This is what he knew of the one he was preaching about. It's my prayer that I would know the one I'm teaching about to that extent. And I hope you will learn that much about him. Uh, any questions or comments? Okay. Uh, Mr. Cross, would you dismiss us in prayer, please? Very God, and my Father, we thank you for loving us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for all the miracles that you have performed and will perform in the future to wait your return, dear Father. And we ask that you bless this group, be with us and help them in the studies and help us to learn more each time we approach the session of the year. Thank you again for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.